Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. So little ones, uh, if you're going to little worship, you can head that way. Rich wanted me to tell you, you know, thank the D team, the music D team, uh, for coming in. They had to bring him in off the streets. We had the A team and the, and him. Um, thank y'all. Y'all, are, it's beautiful. So thank you. That's the A team. Um, so this morning we're going to continue. Hey, we get easy does it. Um, this morning, we're going to continue um, our series, Housekeeping, Taking Out the Theological Trash. And remember, this is a series where we're taking a verse or a passage of Scripture that is common in the culture, but, but it's commonly misinterpreted and misapplied. And so we want to look at it and see what God really has to say for us in these verses. And this morning, we're going to look at a verse. I'm sure everybody in this room has either misused, misapplied, or been a part of a team that that has done so. Um, It's one that's painted on gym walls. It's on the eye black of college football players. I had a poster when I was a kid of a baseball player taking a cut, and it had this verse on it. Um, and if you watch close enough, if you're watching the NBA Finals, uh, Steph Curry, he writes part of this verse on his shoe. And I think he's done it since about 2014. Um, Misha can correct me on that. He's my NBA fact checker. Um, but why, why this fascination with Philippians 4.13? I mean, that's the verse that we're going to be looking at. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what is it? What is the fascination? What is, I mean I, I mean, I think most of us in here can read the verse and go, hey, that's an amazing verse. But what about the broader culture, uh, the misapplication of it? In an interview, uh, a reporter asked Steph Curry why he wrote this verse on his shoe. And I think his answer gives us the common answer as to why people like it. This is what Curry said. He said, Philippians 4.13 is my mantra that I live by. It's something that drives me every single day. It'll hopefully inspire people to find something that drives them. Whether that's a verse or some other motivating force that keeps you hungry and keeps you driven, Philippians 4.13 is mine, and you can pick whatever yours is and let it drive you too as you continue with basketball or whatever field you are in life. And so, the question that we need to ask, is this what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote Philippians 4.13? To be this driving force to just go get it, go take the bull by the horns, get it done, you know, go out there and accomplish what you can because you have the strength of God. You know, is this what God wanted when He inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul, to write this? And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert before we get into it, and I'm going to say no. That, that's, that's not the purpose behind this text. So Matthew Ryan, I don't know if he's here. 
Any of you, you athletes, do not use this as your verse to think you can go in and get under the bench press and pump up 305 just because you quote this verse three times. You know, it's not the verse, Hayden, that, that, that you know, the Pillow Academy football team needs to adopt to ensure a state championship, okay? I want you to adopt this verse, but not for that reason. This verse is much better than what Steph Curry said it was used for. This verse is much better than just to use it as some tack-on phrase to accomplish our dreams in this life and to give us um, a vision for life, right? This verse is much better. So let's, let's look at it in context. If, you're, if you have your Bibles, flip to Philippians chapter 4. And I want to I let you know, we're going to go through many verses today, so if you want to go back and look, if I go too fast, just write down some verses that I, that I share. Um, I'll try to, to slow down, but um, just know that. We're going to go through quite a few verses today. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. We're going to read that whole section there. This is God's Word. Philippians 4.10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory, In Christ Jesus, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And so one thing that we we need to do and we need to remember as we come to God's word the first thing that I want you to remember is that context is king. Context is king. This is why I wanted to read a larger chunk of the Scripture and not just take the one verse by itself, because it helps you when you read above and around what the Apostle's talking about. It helps even more when we're able to sit down and read through a whole letter. We get the full context, and then throughout time, whether it takes you six months, a year, two years, as we read from Genesis to Revelation, we get a better understanding because we interpret Scripture with Scripture, and we get the whole picture. And so we must know the context of this letter to understand why the Apostle Paul would write Philippians 4.13. 
And so, we need to know that Philippians is a letter of the Apostle Paul to the saints in Philippi, and it is a prison letter. Most likely a Roman prison letter. And the Roman prison was not the Four Seasons. It was not a place you wanted to be. It was not a place of remediation. A Roman prison is where you waited to die. Or you awaited trial to know if you were going to die or not. They said men, back in those days, people had two main fears. Death and Roman prison. And this is where Paul is. He's writing from this prison. He's reminding the Philippians that he loves them and he's thankful for the gifts that they've sent to him because the only, well, in a lot of cases, the only way that you could survive is if your friends would send you gifts or bring you food. You know, your friends had to do that. And I just want to tell you, like, um, as a side note to this, just brothers and sisters, um, we need each other. God uses us to help other brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul is he's rejoicing over this church. I mean, remember, if you read through Acts chapter 16, Paul was instrumental in the, in the planting of this church. He gets that vision from God, the Macedonian call, and God, uh, there, there's a man in his vision that says, come over and help us. Well, that was this area. And so Paul goes over to that area and he preaches the gospel. And we read about Lydia, the seller of purple goods. We, we read that, that God worshiper, that she heard the things of God and that God opened her mind up and he saved her. And Lydia and her household are now in this new covenant community. And then we read that, that amazing story about Paul and Silas. They were in prison there in that area and they are singing and praying in the prison. And God sends an earthquake and he busts them out. All the, all the doors open up. And that, and that jailer, he was going to go commit, he was going to kill himself because he thought that all these prisoners had escaped on his watch. And Paul says, no, 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 we're all here. We're all accounted for. And the fear of God came over that jailer. And he said, brothers, what must I do to be saved? And Paul told him, he said, repent and believe the gospel. And so we see the Philippian jailer and his family welcomed into the covenant community. So Paul has deep ties with these brothers and sisters. And he is writing to them to tell them of his love for them. Joy is a main theme of this letter. But Paul has other things to say to them. In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says that what has happened to me, me being locked up in prison, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged. God uses evil for good. And then in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he lets them know that he may die soon. In chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Brothers and sisters, death cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Death is a pathway to more of Jesus. And that's what Paul is reminding them of. In chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And so suffering is a part of God's good plan for us to conform us into the image of Jesus and to bring us home to count it joy. 
And then we get into chapter 2, which I think is the pinnacle of this letter. In chapter 2, we get that great, what many to believe, believe to be an early church hymn, this, this great description of Jesus and the ultimate condescension of Jesus that He left heaven and came down and took on flesh and He became obedient, obedient to the point of death for us. And He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then we read of His great exaltation as He defeats death in the grave and He rises and He's been resurrected and lifted to the right hand of the, of the Father and He is Lord over all. And Paul reminds them of that. And then he says, this Christ, He is for you and He's also given you this example to follow in humility, to consider others of more value than yourselves. And so he's reminding the Philippians of that. Consider others more significant than yourselves. And then throughout the rest of the letter, he's, he's encouraging them. He's, he's encouraging them to strive for unity, to be of the same mind and strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he tells them to guard the gospel. Guard the gospel against false teachers. Rejoice always. Make your requests be made known to God. Pray to Him with prayers of thanksgiving and supplication. And that gets us to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. And we're going to focus on verses 11 through 13. But we need to read verse 10 to see why he said 11 through 13. So in verse 10, Philippians 4.10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And so these Philippians, they had helped him out. They had sent him gifts. They had provided for him. They were, they were in partnership with him in the gospel. And then there was this long span of time where they didn't send a gift. And so now they've sent another gift or gifts through Epaphroditus. And he's saying, thank you. I'm rejoicing in Christ for your gift. Though it had been a while, he's not shaming them here. He's saying, but though it had been a while, now you have revived or restored your love for me and you are sending this gift. Thank you for this. But then, unless, you know, Paul wanted to clear the air, unless people think that Paul was just all about the money and that he's fleecing the flock, he just wants that money, the payday, Paul says in verses 11 through 13, he says, I'm not speaking, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ or through Him who strengthens me. And so Philippians 13 is about Christian contentment. It's about Christian contentment through the highs and the lows through times of plenty and times of hunger. We can do all things through Him who strengthens us. And so let's look at Christian contentment for a bit. And I'm not going to be able to say everything that needs to be said about Christian contentment. This series could be a 20-week series, right? I will commend to you The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. And uh, it's... It's the gold standard on contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. Our own Portia Collins has written articles on contentment. Melissa Kruger has a book called The Envy of Eve on contentment. 
But my point is, we're just going to say some things that are here in the text, but not all things that could be said. So, Christian contentment. What is it? How can we cultivate it? How can we attain this? So first, as we see in the verse, in verse 4.13, Christian contentment is being dependent upon God. First, we have to be dependent upon God. See, Paul, he's using the, the term here for contentment, or that we translate contentment, it had a meaning back in that day, right? So he's, he's coming and he's kind of attacking this, this meaning that they had for contentment in that day. Paul had a, a contemporary, a Stoic philosopher named Seneca at that time. And, and when Seneca was speaking of contentment, this is this, this uh, Stoic philosophy, a, 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 a pagan view of contentment. But Seneca said, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and he's reconciled to his circumstances. And this type of contentment, this was considered one of the highest virtues, basically just keeping the emotions in check. You don't need anyone or anything. You are self-sufficient, and you're just going to be content with your life. Right? It was this, this fatalistic view of life. What will be, what will be. I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm fine, mind over matter. It's kind of the view of the, the pagan culture in that day. And Paul is coming up against this idea of contentment. And he's saying, I can do all things through Him, through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And we know elsewhere in Philippians, Paul said in Philippians 2 that we are to work out our salvation for it is God who works in us to accomplish His purposes. Or Galatians 2.20, he says, For I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and cares for me. And so we see this, this, this Paul is speaking of union with Christ. This is the way that we can attain contentment. is being dependent upon God, looking to Him, knowing that it's from Him, that everything comes. Right? And so the question we must ask, are we, are we dependent upon God for all things? Specifically, being content. You know, are we trying to live life like the Stoics and just, just, just get the bootstraps and tie them up tight and suck it up buttercup? Like, we're going to be content. I mean, that's typically how we work. We just try to bootstrap it. You know, maybe, maybe we, are, we are controlling our emotions with self-talk. Or maybe we're self-medicating through something. Food, drugs, alcohol, uh, social media, anything. Just trying to keep our mind. We're content. We're, I'm content with what I have. Maybe that's what we're doing. We're self-medicating. And we think ourselves to be quite perfectly content in this life. Maybe we're guides to the blind and we're, we, we don't think we struggle with contentment, but those around us do and our counsel to them is harsh. And we just tell them to suck it up and be content. Brothers and sisters, I, I've done this. I've done this with my wife. I've done this with my children. But brothers and sisters, God is the only source of our contentment. 
And he has an infinite reservoir of grace and power to help us in this life to be content. An infinite reservoir. Just as he helped the Apostle Paul and other Christians throughout the ages, he can and he will teach us true contentment. We are not self-sufficient. We are not independent of him. And we're also not dependent upon the creature and creation. We're dependent upon God. And he uses creatures and creation to care for us. But our ultimate dependence is among God. And we must learn this contentment the way that the Apostle Paul did. And this brings me to the second, second point. Christian contentment. First, we're dependent upon God. Second, Christian contentment is learned. Look in verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. He says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And so this was an encouragement to me. It may be bad news to you that think that you're just born content. But this was encouragement to me that contentment is a learning process. It's something that we must learn. It's not in our DNA. It does not come natural to us. It's not some quick download where we're going to hear a sermon about contentment and we're just going to walk out and ooze contentment. It's not going to work that way. It's going to be a constant learning process. This is a part of the process, but it's going to be a constant learning process. They don't offer a class at RTS on contentment where we can go audit it and just come out content. We must learn it in the school of Christ. We must learn it in the school of Christ as he takes us through the highs and the lows. See, in verse 12, Paul says that he learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And this is one thing I I love about the Apostle Paul, is he was not one of those ivory tower types where he's going to say, he's speaking from 300 feet above all of us, and he's telling us all, learn contentment or I've learned contentment while he's up there on his satin pillow. Like Paul suffered great things in his ministry. He had learned to be content by being taken into the school of Christ. And and I wanted to read to you some of Paul's experiences. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Paul said this, He said, to this present hour, speaking of him and the disciples, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And that's the the great apostle and the disciples going out to carry the message of the gospel. Scum of the earth. What about 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12? 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 12. Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, The body is a jar of clay. We have this treasure, the message of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, 
but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Paul was not facing all those struggles as a stoic. He is acknowledging the hardship. It's, it's okay and good for us to acknowledge the hardship and to go to the Lord with our lows, with our hardship. It's okay. It's good to do that. And Paul did it here. He's acknowledging the hardship. He's saying, I'm perplexed, but I'm not despairing. You know, persecuted, but I'm not cast off. And so here we see, what is his ultimate focus when he's saying these things? Where is he learning to put his trust? It's in the Lord. He says the surpassing power belongs to God. God is sustaining us. And his main concern, Paul's main concern, was not self-preservation. Paul's main concern is Jesus, the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of Christ in his glory. He knew, Paul knew, he owns me. He, he's my savior. And I can endure these hardships for his sake and for your sake so that you can hear the gospel. So is this how, is this how we view our lows? As an opportunity to rely on God knowing it's He alone that provides for us and provides our strength. Boasting in our weaknesses to highlight His power. Oftentimes, I'm just frustrated with my weaknesses. And I'm not boasting in them to highlight His power. I'm grumbling about my weaknesses or my lows. We must shift the focus from self and the focus from comparison to other people and shift it to Christ, the Lord, knowing He's the one who's going to provide. He will provide, and He will bring me home. He will bring us home. We shift our focus. If our eyes are on the things of this world, comparing ourselves to others and what we lack to other people, we are just going to constantly be grumbling. And it reminds me of Israel in, in the wilderness. They've, they've been rescued and redeemed. And then they want to go back to Egypt because Egypt had pomegranates and Egypt had leeks and onions. I don't know, that, that was appealing to them. It's appealing to us, right? Oftentimes we want to go back to Egypt, but we have a better place. We have a better Savior. Okay? So God is He's teaching us contentment in the hunger. He's showing us that our appetites cannot be satisfied by worldly things, but can only be satisfied by Him. We're not to go drink from the cisterns of the world. We drink from the fountain of life, which is Christ. But sometimes, we are blessed with many earthly things that are good gifts, and we must learn contentment there as well. It's not just in the lows, but in the highs. Paul says, I learned how to be brought low. I learned how to abound. And so now we'll look at the highs. And this one seems kind of strange to us because one would think the more that we have materially, the more content we would actually be. And that's just not the case. We all know by experience that the accumulation of things does not equal contentment. It definitely doesn't equal Christian contentment. The accumulation of things and earthly goods. 
You know, we read more about Paul's difficulties in the Scriptures, but we know, I mean, there was times of abounding because he said so. We know that churches provide for his need, provided for his needs like the Philippians, and so there were times where he had an abundance of goods, apparently. You know, food and clothing, shelter. And so he must learn true contentment there. Corley read it uh, in the passage this morning. There was a time where, I believe he's talking about himself, where he was taken up to this third heaven, whatever that's like. This, this great spiritual abounding. And then he says, but the Lord sent a messenger of Satan so that I wouldn't be conceited. This thorn in the flesh that I've prayed for it to be removed. And God wouldn't do it because he told him, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. So what's the issue? Like, What is, the, what is one of the, the dangers of having a lot of things? Or how should we learn contentment when we have an abundance? Why? What's the danger? We become proud, self-sufficient. We think that we've attained all these things. We forget God. And I was thinking about it as I prepared this, and I think of the Lord's Prayer and how in that prayer we have, um, uh, we're praying for our daily needs, right? Give us this day our daily bread. And I thought, you know, I often pray that at like maybe 9 o'clock at night. But I've had goods all throughout the day. And I, I just think in our culture, the point I'm trying to make is like, we can say the prayer, but, but I'm not, I don't think I'm really reliant upon God for my needs, my daily bread. And so, when we have an abundance, it's easy to forgive God and become proud. And most of us in this room, this is what we need help with the most because compared to the world at large, like we have a lot. We have an abundance. And we are in an age of nonstop marketing, right? Your phone is listening to you and you say something about, you know, a steak or a grill and all of a sudden you look through your social media and there's a grill advertisement. Your phone is listening to you. Your Alexa Listening. TV is probably listening to you. And I'm not one of these conspiracy theorists, but it's just reality. Like, we're in this age of nonstop marketing. Whatever you click on, whatever you purchase, people are going to be sending you ads, right? Telling you you need the newest thing. You need a better thing. You're not pretty enough. You need this. You're not skinny enough. You need that. Always coming after us, saying you need more, you need better. And we must be so very careful to not let the love of money and the love of things creep in and steal what belongs to Christ alone. And there's a way that our love and our hope can shift from God to our possessions, so we must guard against it. And this, this whole, that situation that I'm describing there, that reminds me of the garden, right? Where God has said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the ends of the earth, subdue the earth. Rule over it. Here's all these good things, all these good trees and things to eat of. Yet he says, don't eat from this tree. And then Satan comes in and says, you need that tree. God doesn't want you to eat from it because he doesn't want you to be like him. They weren't content in the garden with a relationship with God and all the things that he had given them. And I think we also need to remember the words of Jesus. When he talked about how it's, it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because it's so easy to set the hope and the heart and the love on riches. 
Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. We're about to finish up here. Listen to what he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So it's not, it's not a sin to have things. It's not a sin to be rich. But we must guard our hearts from setting our hopes on riches and on things. We set our hope on the Lord, on God. So what are some things as we, as we leave, what are some things that we can do as we rely on God to work in us to produce contentment. Just some principles from the Word here, some things that we can do as God works in us and through us. One, we can enjoy God's good gifts. And not with shame or guilt. We can enjoy God's good gifts, but we set our hope on Jesus. He is our Savior, not things. Remember, all of our earthly things are fleeting and will perish. All is vanity without Jesus. And so set our hope on Christ. Enjoy gifts, but set our hope on Christ. And in times of abundance, we must learn to keep a loose grip on things because they could be taken away and will be taken away ultimately. And keep a tight grip on Christ. For He has taken a hold on you. His grip on you is tighter than your grip will ever be on Him. But we hold on to Christ in faith in Him, knowing that He has a hold on us and He will not let us go. All right, number two, remember that ultimate gain is Christ. Paul said death is gain. That blows our minds, blows my mind, right? That death is gain, but we must remember that ultimate gain is Christ. Philippians chapter 1 Verses 19 through 23. He says, For I know that your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall not, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And so Paul is telling us, remember that death is gain, right? To be with Christ. Three, meditate on the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Paul tells us this in, in Philippians chapter 3. He lays out his resume and he says, if anybody's got reason to boast in the flesh, I've got reason to boast in the flesh. But I count all things as lost for the surpass, uh, surpassing knowledge of, of Christ Jesus, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So everything in our life is lost compared to knowing Christ Jesus and having a righteousness, not of our own, but a righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ. His righteousness given to us. Last two, know yourself, and this one's really short, 
Know yourself as a sinner and what you really deserve, what I really deserve in this life. No good thing ever. But wrath because of my sin against the high king of heaven. We must know this. We must think through this. Like, I deserve no good thing. And yet I've been given everything in Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus, you've been given everything. All right, and last, heed this warning. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Heed this warning and believe this promise. Hebrews 13, 5. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The reason that we don't go after the love of money is because God will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is what I was thinking through. This is what Adam and Eve, though they didn't have Hebrews 13, 5, this was the principle that they should have responded, in my opinion, in the garden. This is how they should have responded. We have God. We don't need to eat from that tree. He said not to eat from that tree. He, we have him. Right? But they didn't say that. They sinned. They ate from the tree. And sin and death entered through them. But in God's great mercy, He didn't destroy them on the spot. In His great grace, He promised to send one to crush the head of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He sent His Son, Jesus, the truly content one, the one who left heaven and came down to take on flesh, to live as a servant, to live and to die in your place. The suffering servant, the one who said foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He was truly content to do the will of the Father. He says, it is my food to do the will of the Father. But was he a Stoic? No. We read of his prayer in the garden when he's saying, Father, let this cup pass from me. In his humanity, he's saying, Father, let this cup pass from me because he knew what was coming. But what did he say after that? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus cried out to God in his distress, but ultimately resigned to the providence of God and the will of God saying, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your, your will be done. And we know he went to the cross and he took sin upon himself and the payment for sin and died in our place. And so that now if you repent and believe the gospel, his perfect contentment is credited to your account. So every time the Lord looks at you, he sees the perfect contentment of Christ who was always content. And that is on your record. That's on your account. And because of that, we are free to now live out this life and pursue our own actual contentment in this life without the fear of condemnation because his account is credited to your account. And he was perfectly content. And so, brothers and sisters, as we leave, what more do we need? 
We have everything that we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. We have great and precious promises all throughout this word. Constant reminders that he loves you, that he died for you, and that he will bring you home. That he will bring us home. We don't need anything else. We have everything that we need in Christ. We don't just have the mercy of God. We have the God of mercy. We don't just have the peace of God. We have the God of peace. We, have, we don't just have the righteousness of God. We have the God who is righteous. He is ours and we are his. So, Philippians 4.13 is not a verse to just tack on to our life to give us good vibes or to kind of supercharge our dreams and what we're going to go do. No, no Philippians 4.13 is a verse that you do need to make your life verse to hold on to in the good and the bad. When the crops when they're growing or when they're not growing, we need to hold on to that verse because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us and He will accomplish His purposes and He will keep His promises and bring us home in the end. Amen? Let's pray. Um, dear Lord, thank You for this word. Thank You for this reminder um, of Your goodness of your, your nearness to us, your promise that you will be with us, you'll never leave us nor forsake us, Lord, and that you will strengthen us um, until the last day, Lord, when we see you face to face. Help us, like, Lord, many, we, we, we often turn our eyes away from you and we set our hope in other things to fulfill us. Lord, help us. Thank you for the, the, the grace of repentance that we can turn from that and our eyes can be directed back on you and ultimately, we know that you have a hold to us and you will never let us go, Lord. We are secure. You will never leave us nor forsake us. So God, thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.